Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we talk with a retired school administrator, writer, and podcaster, George Wood, of the small town of Amesville, Ohio. During the COVID pandemic, he took a personal journey of two months and 7,500 miles to small towns in the Midwest, sometimes trout fishing, but more often just talking with people. As a result, he's developed a new podcast called Positively No Outlet, where he tells stories of captivating people living and thriving in small town America. George, you've done something that I think a lot of people uh, envy would envy. Uh, some people would want to do and they haven't done. You took off for two months and traveled 7,500 miles. Why did you do that? And what did you do while you were gone? Well, Tom, we, uh, we jokingly call it my pandemic road trip. I covered uh, seven or eight states and, like you say, about 7,500 miles in the upper Midwest out to Montana and then back through North Dakota, South Dakota. I initially, quite frankly, thought I was going on a fishing trip. Um, you know, the pandemic was raging. I'm, I was retired. Uh, after I'd quit as superintendent, my phone stopped ringing. I didn't seem to have a whole lot to do. And uh, my wife said, well, you've always wanted to be a trout bum. Why don't you just go do it? And we had a little uh, 13-foot scamp trailer. I hooked it up and I took off. And uh, like I said, I thought I was going on a fishing trip, but the ama an amazing thing happened. I kept running into all sorts of really fascinating people in very small towns doing extraordinary things. And, uh, and so I started writing about it uh, while I was on the road, taking notes. And uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that, that was the trip. How did you pick your, your itinerary? I, it it <laughs> well, you know, William Leesheet Moon wrote a book called Blue Highways a long time ago. Um, what I used was the red lettering on the maps. You know, every every map has little red letters of little attractions, little things to see. Right. And I have a dog-eared old atlas. I don't use GPS, and I just started looking around, seeing. Where could I go? My first stop, I, uh, quite frankly, I went to northern Michigan. A, a sister of mine had died uh, in January, and it had taken a long time to organize the uh, the memorial. So I went there in early June, and then I decided, well, I'd cut across the Mackinac Bridge and head west. And I, I didn't really have an itinerary. But you, you picked these small towns and, you know, you stayed in some of them quite a, quite a few days. 
Yeah, I, I would land in places, you know, little places like Regent, Montana, and uh, population 150, where a guy named Gary Greff is building something or has built something he calls the Enchanted Highway, which features the world's largest scrap metal sculptures. Or I ended up in Robinson, North Dakota, population 39, which was having a battle with rugby North Dakota on where the center of North America was. And I just happened to stumble in there when Centerfest was going on and they made me welcome and even let me sit in with one of the bands. I play drums, you know, and so I got to sit in with one of the bands at the festival. Um, yeah, I just kind of land in these places and uh, sometimes think, well, I'm just going to spend the night and I'd end up spending three days. You, you had two criteria, tried to stay off interstates and to not eat at any kind of chain restaurant. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to go slow, meet people, and, uh, and, and just see the country. Um, and like I say, it started as a fishing trip. I, I, I love to fish for trout. I'm a fly fisherman. And so, uh, you know, the first really interesting thing that threw the trip in a different direction was landing in uh, Harmony, Minnesota, which is near the Driftless region where there's a lot of fishing. But Harmony was just this fascinating town with this great little restaurant that's based in the community, a, a manufacturing center that built up to give local people jobs. Uh, local people had supported it. Now they were supporting a, a distillery. And I just thought the story was just too good to just stop in and drive away. So I just hung around for a while. So what you've done with these, you've put them into, you wrote stories, and now you're doing your own podcast called Positively No Outlet. Talk about that a moment. Right. The idea behind the podcast, uh, two friends of mine and I have put it together, and it's to sort of tell stories, good news stories from what we call Flyover America. You know, the towns that often don't show up in the white heat of the media sometimes and and where people are just doing really good stuff. We say, they're, you know, extraordinary people doing ordinary things and ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And so we've turned it into the Positively No Outlet podcast where I uh, talk about some of the places we've been to. And uh, yeah, we've had a lot of fun with that. And where can people listen to this? Well, you know, it's the positivelynooutlet.com, but it's also on uh, Google Play, Apple Play, um, you know, all the, all the places people get their podcasts. Spotify. <laughs> so, George, let's go back and sort of trace your, your, your trip here a bit. Um, sure. What prompted you to start writing while you were on the road? And, and did that cause any difficulties or was that easy to do? It, Tom, it's, it's interesting. When the, when the pandemic first started, I was actually taking a creative writing course at OU. Uh, you know, the campus is really good about letting old, old folks like me uh, sit in on classes if there's room. And I was taking a creative writing class because I had in my head I wanted to write short stories, maybe even a novel about small towns. And so when I was on the trip, I had all these notes from the writing class. And then I started meeting real people that made me want to start writing. And and a couple of times it was you know, when I'd be taking notes, talking to somebody, they'd say, what are you, what are you doing? What are you writing down? I said, oh, I, you know, that's not fair. You know, I had to learn some protocols, you know, to say, do you mind if I take a couple notes? Do you mind if I use your name? But it really never caused any problems because people were just pretty proud of where they were. 
you know, they, they loved telling their stories. And, uh, so when I, when I cut across Northern Michigan, I dropped down into Wisconsin to a place called Washington Island. And that was an early discovery on the way through the cherry orchards in Door County. I met a woman named Pat who, uh, who was doing community kitchens. Uh, I thought she was just an orchardist, uh, not just an orchardist, but, you know, and I, and who made great cherry turnovers, but it turns out she started all these community kitchens all over the U S and, and we got talking, found out she'd learned how to do community kitchens in Athens, Ohio at AceNet. And I thought, well, there's an amazing story, right? So we got going on that one and it, it just prompted me to think, don't write fiction, um, write real life. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I have notebooks full of notes. I started putting stuff up on my Facebook page, right? And that's when a couple friends got in touch and said, hey, we got to figure out a way to get this out a little bit further. So are you from a small town? What what was your <laughs> affinity to small towns? Well, my I did grow up in a small town, Fenton, Michigan, uh, outside of Detroit. My dad was in the auto industry. But when we came here to Athens, uh, you know, I was on the faculty at OU, um, we looked real hard to find a, a affordable housing, as it were, and we landed in Amesville, which, uh, you know, is outside of Athens population. I think right now is about 165. And I have loved living in Amesville. It has just been a, a wonderful place to uh, to raise our kids. It's, it's very, it's actually very diverse um, uh, <laughs> in, a, in a lot of ways. And I just am in intrigued by what people do to kind of hold on to a life in a place that uh, a lot of people just drive through. I I sometimes sit downtown in front of the bank and watch cars go by. And I think, I I bet they wonder, why does anybody even live here? (laughs) So so that kind of prompted it. That was the thing. I, I just, I really wanted to see smaller places. Well, you know, we we talk on this podcast a lot about politics and a lot about current events. And one of the things that impressed me that that you did, being a a news person myself, uh, you you turned off the news. And and I'm I'm curious, (laughs) did that help your perspective? Yes, that was a decision. I tell you, the first day. And I talk a little bit about it in the opening uh, episode of the podcast. But the first day was so depressing, to be honest, that I almost turned around and came home. Um, I had my new, the news on, you know, going between CNN and MSNBC and Fox and PBS and, you know, trying to listen. And then there's all the political signs because, of course, it was the start of the campaign. And as I say, many of the bumper stickers and signs seem more about agitating people than trying to, you know, convince them to vote in a particular way. And, and at the end of that first day, I was just really ground down. You know, I got to the, uh, it's Black Lake, Michigan, where I was going, where my sister's uh, memorial service was. And I was sitting in my trailer thinking, I'm just worn out and it's only been one day. It's just too much. And so I kind of made a little pact that night that if I was going to go on, uh, the radio was going to get turned off. And so I, uh, I put it on just music stations. Um, I mean, I kind of, we all knew what was going on, right? I mean, there, there, there right. was no getting away from it. But what I thought was if I could just focus on what's in front of me th- instead of what's far away from me, I might learn more. 
And uh, one of the first things I noticed, and you know, I was in, I was in what people often refer to as very red counties, right? Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is okay. And but one of the first things I noticed was I saw a whole lot more signs saluting graduates than I did for a political candidate. You know, it was after these kids couldn't have a graduation, right? So all these little towns were festooned with banners, with kids' faces, and also faces of nurses and doctors and local business. And I thought, you know, these these folks are kind of digging in on something that that isn't on the news waves. Not that it necessarily should be, but just they're doing something that that means make has great meaning for them. And that's what I wanted to understand is what has meaning for you in this place. It, it, it something I'm listening to to your podcast. I was going to ask you. You know, it, it seems that your stories transcended politics, and and really dug down into what people were doing to help humankind, so to speak, even on a on a small town level. Yeah. Was that purposeful on your part? Yeah, it was. Um, I, he, he, we haven't put the last two episodes up, but in the last one, there's a young man named Sawyer who I met out in uh, Twin Bridges, Montana. And uh, Sawyer works at the Winston Rod Factory. And for fly fishermen who are listening to it, they're all going, oh, the Winston fly. And it's a handmade fly rods in America. They're very nice. Uh, but they weren't open. I couldn't go in because of the pandemic. And and when and this uh, Sawyer had said, "Well, do you want to try one of the rods? You want to take it out?" And I said, "No, no, that'd be like Harry Potter and a wand. You know, I'll, <laughs> I'll grab one and it won't let go of me, and I I just can't do that." But then we got talking, and he was a he was a student in environmental engineering. And I I said, "Well, you know, environmental engineering here in the West, it, there must be some tensions." He said, "You know." It is true that most of the ranchers, the old timers are Republicans, and most of the new guys in here that are fishermen are are Democrats, they're more liberal. But when it comes to keeping the water clean and making sure the land doesn't blow away, we know we're all in this together. And so it it was it was it was that was the statement. That was the one I'll take away with me. In the end he said, you know, we give each other a lot of guff, but but uh, we don't really mean anything by it. And I thought, yeah, that that really captured what uh, what I what I what I saw. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream, and in every medium and by all means, it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. 
Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Your first two episodes uh, focused on, uh, well, the first sort of recaps why you're doing it, but the the first couple uh, focused on Harmony, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and one of the titles was people might not think we're nice. Oh yes. That uh, was, that was from that Cook really City. My, that really caught my eye. Talk about that. Well, that was, that was out in Cook City, Montana. And Cook City is a little town on the, on the Eastern side of the, uh, of the, of Yellowstone National Park. And we, a friend and I were there uh, spending the night. We were going to go into the park the next day. And all, of, all through the town, all through Cook City were these signs that Cook City united against racism. And I thought, this is, this is wild. This is a little town. It's a hundred people during the the off season. It uh, balloons to three hundred people during the tourist season. And I thought that's that's really. And they were everywhere. It was in every store window. It was on the street. It was that I have this great picture of it. It's it's uh, of that sign tacked to a pickup truck full of firewood. And, you know, one sign is firewood for sale. The other is Cook City United Against Racism. And I asked this woman in a coffee shop about the signs. And she said, well, you know, it was after the George Floyd incident and and Fourth of July was coming up. And we just thought people might come to come to this town. And, you know, we're we're pretty white and they might think we're not nice. Uh, and I said, you mean racist? And she said, yeah, I mean racist. And, and she said, we just want people to know just because we live in a small town with a sawmill and mainly white folks, we're not racist. We want everybody to feel welcome here. And and I thought that was such a, a great sentiment. So yeah, that was the title of the first episode is people might think we're not nice. And talk about Harmony. Oh, Harmony. What a great little town. I, I, Harmony, I ended, Minnesota. Where Harmony, is it, by the way? It's down in uh, 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 southeastern Minnesota. Okay. Um, it's uh, just across, uh, just about forty miles across the state line from Wisconsin. It's about a hundred miles uh, south uh, east of Minneapolis, and it, it's a fascinating little town. I I just stumbled into it because I heard of this great restaurant. I, I the fishing had been blown out that day. They had a real big rain the night before, and the river I was creek I was going to fish on was blown out. Everything was blown out. So I thought, well, you know, I drove through Harmony. I'm going to go back there because I really need to see a town named Harmony, right? And I ate at Estelle's, which is this little restaurant. Great story there. A young man and, and his wife returned to town, bought this building, fixed it up, uh, turned it back into a restaurant. Um, and then I started hearing other stories. Uh, living, you know, like, living above the restaurant. Yes, I mean, yeah, they live above the restaurant. The yeah. old world kind of way, right? Yeah, right. I mean, the building had once been a restaurant, and they rehabbed it, and they live above it. Um, and then I heard other stories. I said, well, you should check out Harmony Harmony Industries. I said, what's that? And I said, well, Harmony, Harmony Enterprises, go take a look. And I went over there and this company started back in the in the 70s, early 70s, when people realized there was, weren't going to be enough jobs because farming was becoming bigger and bigger. That was the main industry and they needed fewer and fewer people. So the people of Harmony all threw in money and they started this business that initially started making ice fishing shelters. Um, and, and the, wow. bikini, and, and the bikini cane, which was a walking cane that would fold out into a tripod seat. Right. 
And uh, <laughs> when that started to dry up, then they decided they need to do something else. And they created the first pop-up trailers, you know, with the tents, the, the right. original ones. They, they were the ones that built the tents. Then they realized that was too seasonal. So then they got uh, into the recycling business. And they are now the third largest manufacturers of recycling equipment, uh, compactors and the, that sort of stuff in, in the world. They actually have an office in France. Um, and this is all was all about local people. Throw, the lo- it was started by local people. Just everybody contributed a bunch of money and said, well, we hope something works. And what was interesting is how that's kept on because these four, three guys who have started a distillery, it's called Harmony Spirits. The bourbon is not bad. It's pretty good, actually. Um, <laughs> I, can, I can speak from experience. And uh, they had the same problem. No bank wanted to loan the money. So they went to the community and all these neighbors said, yeah, we can do this. And they all threw in a bunch of money and now they've started this distillery. And uh, it, it was just really fascinating to be in a town where uh, when op- when challenges come up or opportunities occur, the whole community just sort of steps up and says, well, what can we do to make this happen? We're also used to big box stores and okay. chain operations. And I found it fascinating that you went into a local grocery store and they took your list and went around and yes. shopped with you. Yes. Uh, well, you've heard this. You you've heard the saying, Minnesota nice, right? And and I ran into a lot of Minnesota nice folks, but absolutely true. I walked in and the clerk could tell that I wasn't from there. He said, let me help you. And he took my list and started going around putting things in my basket. Um so yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think if you just slow down enough and 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 get away from the interstate exchanges, and hit towns where where people are engaged in the daily work of trying to make their place the best it can be for everybody, um, you run into these stories. And and uh, yeah, it's it was just it was it was terrific. Did did you find? Uh- I know that that you're a study of human nature. Did you find values? Did did it sort of bolster your your? Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know how to put it. So, you know, we get so cynical sometimes. Did it bolster your faith in humanity it, uh, in, in some of these places? I tell you what, it 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 rekindled um, my love for my country. If that doesn't sound really? too cheesy, yeah. It, it you know. We've been through some really tough times, right? And right. and and the the, the 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 anger around something as simple as whether or not you wear a mask, you know, um, the way we've seen fellow citizens treated by the police, um, the campaigns that that have have gone on that have been just so nasty, right? I will tell you, when I started on this trip, it was sort of like a, I I worried for my country. You know, I just felt like, and you know, I tried to do a few things. I took groceries to neighbors. I registered voters, but I, I realized how insignificant those acts were. I just felt like I wasn't making any difference. And so to be out on the road and see these people, see these fellow citizens every day, trying to make their, their communities better, trying to clean up the water, trying to preserve the history, you know, it, it just, it just was, was, was awe-inspiring. I mean, I was, I was just really inspired. Well, that's one thing I do want to talk about, and that is history. So many times we we think that, that small towns are going to disappear yeah. in this country and the history along with them. 
you found people really in tune to their history and wanting to preserve it, correct? Yeah, that was, um, you know, we did a whole episode on, uh, on, on holding on to the past because I, I, I must admit to being a, to having been formerly a museum snob, you know, I, I've been to the Smithsonian, I've been to the Getty, I've been to the right. New York museums, but I would go right by the little town museums. Right. And I, I want you to know that's really changed after this trip because I first, first stopped in when I really saw what was going on, it was in Virginia city, Montana, and I stopped. Virginia City is this giant ghost town, by the way. It's, it's this incredible place. And I guess a lot of people knew about it. I sure didn't. But the first marker I came to was about a woman named Sarah Bickford. And Sarah Bickford had been born a slave in Tennessee, got out to Montana by trading her after, after the Civil War, got out to Man- Montana by trading her services as a nanny. Uh, married a guy who he then dies. I'm shortening the story. It's much longer, but he, he dies and leaves her three quarters of the Virginia city water department. And she, she, yeah, she, she takes courses, she takes correspondence courses, becomes quite the businesswoman, buys the other quarter of the water department. She ends up being the first woman in Montana. And I would suggest maybe the only African-American woman in the United States who owned a public utility. And I thought, what an amazing story and what a story nobody knows. And so then I started going to more of these small local museums and realizing that, you know, they're holding on to a history that that really addresses some of the issues we face today. I mean, every one of them is filled with the uh, with the memorabilia of, of immigration and how immigrants built this country. You know, and you read their stories and you think, how could you be against immigration? you know, if you pay attention to what happened. So, um, yeah, it was, it was great to go to those places. Um, and, uh, I would encourage anybody wandering through any of these towns. If you see one of these little local museums, Oh, please stop because the stories are, are so powerful. The one that really struck me too was in, uh, the O'Fallon museum out in, uh, in Montana. And, and there was a small display. It was way back in one corner and it was a cork board and on it were, 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 all these newspaper clippings from the World War II era, and it was all pictures of young people who were going on, who had enlisted and were, and were going off to fight. And, you know, their hats are jauntily, you know, off to one side right. and they're smiling. And then you read and you realize most of them never came home. And uh, yeah, wow. yeah, it was, it was a great moment. What, one of the things that in listening to, to your podcast that, that struck me is that, you know, we, we take pride in our small towns. A lot of people do. And, and in the culture and the history, as you've pointed out, but somehow we have to put things on display. Hmm. Uh, and your, your story about the scrap metal sculpture <laughs> in North Dakota, you mentioned it earlier, but I, I'd like for you to, to tell our listeners a little bit about this. Cause that, I just found that amazing. Oh, Tom, that, oh, what a place. So this guy's name is Gary Graff and he came back to the little town of Regent, North Dakota worried because he had nieces and nephews there. He didn't have any children, but he knew there were no jobs. This town was once 450 people. It's now about 120. It's in the plains, right? It's in the wheat fields and farming has become again, more mechanized, more concentrated. And so fewer jobs. And he kept trying to figure out what he could do to bring 
work. And he actually came up with this great idea to do a chopped onion uh, canning factory, which um, a lot of grocers are interested in because nobody likes to chop onions, but uh, he couldn't, couldn't get bank financing for it. So then he started thinking, well, he realized, well, there's a lot of scrap metal around here. Uh, left over from the oil boom, and all the farmers know how to weld, maybe could do something. So he started creating these giant scrap metal sculptures. I mean, one called Geese in Flight just towers like 145 feet above the interstate highway. It, According to the Guinness World Book of Records, it is the world's largest scrap metal sculpture. Um, well, there's a picture. Of, there's a picture of you on your <laughs> yes. on your website, and you and your trailer named Charlie are are like minuscule. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then you drive down the highway to Regent, and there are all these other sculptures. There's the deer family, it's two deer jumping, and the deer tower fifty feet above you. My favorite one was one called Fisherman's Dream because it had all these fish on it. And uh, I actually hooked up my fly rod and uh, tied tied the fly rod to this 75-foot rainbow trout and acted <laughs> like I was catching it, right, so I could get a picture <laughs> to send home. But all these things he's done on his, his guy's never taken an art class. That You know, he's, he just started designing them and drawing them and getting people to build them. And, and now he's bought the old uh, high school when they closed it and turned it into the Enchanted Castle Inn. And out in front of it, he's building a 100-foot-long fire-breathing dragon and a 60-foot-tall knight to fight it. And the dragon is supposed <laughs> to shoot fire every hour on the hour. Now, I'm, I'm actually going to go back this summer because I got to see this, right? I'm going to make a return trip. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it still struggles because it's not making any money. There are these beautiful things that are out there for free. Uh, the state's not supporting it. And so he's kind of puzzled. Okay, what you know? What went wrong here? Why why isn't it changing the economy? Because since he started, more businesses have closed and more people have left. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a you know it's a beautiful story. It's a tragic story at the same time. Sort of a bittersweet kind of story. Let me ask you about the writing. And you, you said you wrote as as you went. Uh, did the writing flow? I mean, what, mm. did it just come out? Because what you read in your podcast is is quite eloquent. But did you have to struggle with the writing to get it just right so it wasn't condescending, it was honoring, it was factual? Talk about that process. Yeah, it, it, really good point. I, I took a ton of notes, and I wrote every night on Facebook and posted some pictures. And what I, what I wanted to be careful of is, is I didn't want anybody to feel like they were caricatures in this. I, I wanted people right. to see that, no, this is, this is what's going on. And so basically the, the real writing occurred once I got home and could go through my notes and sit here in Amesville and kind of rewrite things. And it was as I was doing that, that, that the organization came to me, you know, it's the, the, the podcast isn't just, I went here, then I went here, then I went here. It's right. it kind of built each episode has sort of a theme. Most of them deal with a place, but there's a theme in it. And uh, yeah, that was a struggle. But the great part about the writing was I got to call these people again. You know, I picked up the phone and called them and said, Hey, remember me? I came through with my trailer. We were talking. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tell. And, and we had really great second conversations um, it's yielded a few invites. I think I, I definitely think I'm going back to Robinson population 35, North Dakota, uh, for Centerfest again this year. And we're thinking maybe doing the podcast live from there that we think that would be fun. So 
we're going to try a few things like that with it. So what now? You hmm. you had your trip. You did two months and 7,500 miles, and uh, you wrote these these wonderful stories and and honored these people and places. Where do you go from here? Well, I want to get better at it. Uh, and so um, I'm, I'm making a trip um, next month. I'm, I'm headed south, going down, uh, in fact, uh, late next week, I'm going down to Harlan, Kentucky. There's a, a group called the Higher Ground Players that are putting on a, a, a performance that I've heard a lot about. I'd like to go meet those I'm, folks and talk to them. I'm, I'm going to learn how to tape record people because the podcast we think would be better if you heard other people's voices, not just mine. Um, so we're going to try that. Uh, I do know I'm going to make a swing back out West again. I, I want to go back to several of the places, a couple of people in harmony keep bugging me about coming back and you need to come inside the factory. And you need, so I, I think I'm going to go back to harmony. I, I know I'm going to go back as I said to Robinson. Um, so, uh, I, I hope to just keep traveling around one of the, one we're playing with an idea of maybe doing a whole series on, on young farmers that are trying to start out farming. We are also thinking about doing one on small town restaurants. So if anybody out there has a great small town restaurant to recommend to me, town needs to be under 500 people. Let me know. Just uh, quickly, but these small towns restaurants, did they have specialties each, each place like oh, oh God, pie I or a special dish or. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was just, I just did a quick little trip to uh, West Virginia and found a little restaurant that you've heard of the pepperoni roll. Well, this place has added ramps to it and they have a ramparoni roll and they were delicious. <laughs> so yeah, you got to find places like that. <laughs> this reminds me, George, of uh, a 21st century audio digital on the road with Charles Corral that used to be on CBS where this gentleman for our young listeners traveled mm-hmm. around the country in a motorhome with a, a camera crew back then and just did these stories of ordinary people in in extraordinary places uh, it seems like that's fairly typical of what you're doing oh to be compared to Charles Corral I mean <laughs> another you know he he uh, was educated in Chapel Hill as as I was North Carolina right um yeah that's that's kind of the idea you know it's uh I I'm it's not going to be a full-time occupation but uh it gives me an excuse to um you know like I say rekindle my faith in the country I love yeah, you know, it, it's so true that these stories are are not told, and we're so consumed uh, these days with with the headlines or uh, with uh, the latest social media uh, trending trend uh, that uh, we don't take time and, and yeah. look at some of these places. Yeah. There's a, a a lot of value in just slowing down and talking to people, you know, and and I think. Uh, I, and I don't, I don't want to think for, or, or have your listeners think for a minute that these folks are are naive about what's going on all around them. You know, they no. they, they knew what was going on and they were worried about it. And but but what they thought they could do was make where they are better. They they, you know, that's what they thought they were called to do is is make where they were at that moment a better place to be for everybody. And we can all take a lesson from that. Yeah, yeah. 
George, it's been a delight. It's really a change of pace for us, and, <laughs> and I appreciate you talking with us. Good luck with your podcast. Yeah. Again, it's Positively No Outlet, and you can get it at your podcast uh, outlets or at your website, PositivelyNoOutlet.com. Right. Thanks, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. Today, we've been talking with educator, writer, and podcaster George Wood about his in-depth look at small-town America called Positively No Outlet. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hans. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. And Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Music.